0: Russell Oliver Stone is a British heritage artist best known for his 1976 number 5 UK charting duet, We Do It, as part of R&J Stone. Russell had a peripatetic professional singing career, leading to being a member of the James Last Choir, and has worked in all areas of the music business, such as television, radio, touring and cabaret. He accompanied a wide variety of artists, including Marvin Gaye, Adamant, Tony Bennett, Twisted Sister, Sir Cliff Richard, and Wright Said Fred. More recently, Russell has been on a conscious spiritual journey since attending a clinic for alcoholism in 1992 and has been sober for 29 years. He continues to study the great wisdom traditions of the East, yoga, Buddhism, and Sufism as well as the Western tradition of transpersonal psychology. R&J Stone included Russell's New Jersey-born wife, Joanne Stone. Both met whilst touring with James Last in 1973, and they married the following year. We Do It was inspired by Ashford and Simpson, and the demo was played to Phil Swern, the song's subsequent producer, and led to the duo signing with RCA. The song featured one of the first music videos to be made. Sadly, Joanne passed away in 1979. Next month sees the release of Full House, the first single to be lifted from the album of the same title. Russell, how did it all begin?
1: My mother and father used to work at the Hoover factory on the Great West Road. And one Christmas, there was a musical Uh, there was a party, a celebration concert organised, and they asked each department to send their best singer. So that was how my mother and father met. So I was born in music, if you like. Um, Yeah, (laughs) that was the beginning.
0: I mean, that's a famous building, the Hoover Building. It used to be Tesco's. I think it's now a block of flats, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so when did you discover that you had uh, a voice and musical talent?
1: Um, well, it kind of firmed up for me. I was at uh, a college called Wyndham College in Norfolk, which was a tech college, which is absolutely, utterly the wrong place for me to be, but there I was. And they have. Had a concert every year, and uh, this was in the nineteen late fifties, early sixties. And the musical <laughs> choice in those days was Gilbert and Sullivan. So I ended up uh, being the lead in about three concerts. And um, when I was in the lower six, I had my the first of a few implodes. And uh, a teacher, one of the, the only teacher who had any kind of wit about him, found me on the stairs, I was kind of frozen. He said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. got no idea, and I've got no idea what I want to do. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. He said, well, what are you good at? I said, well, I can sing. So he suggested I get the stage, and I got the stage, found an audition, auditioned, got into a show, and that was the start.
0: So your introduction to Operetta via Gilbert and Sullivan, had you thought about pursuing an opera career?
1: Well, not, no, not at all. <clears throat> I wasn't a trained singer. What I did, I did actually audition for the, um, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but the uh, Dolly Cart, that's right. And the guy said, mm, very good. He said, uh, go away, do a lot of singing and come back in five years. So I thought, okay, well, well, I never went back anyway.
0: But there is something magical about singing Gilbert and Sullivan.
1: Oh, the, it's beautiful. The, lang- the the use of words are stupendous. I mean, the, the, the lyrics, I can't remember which one was which, but the music was just spot on. They were real prose. And the lyrics were, a joy. as you say, they were a joy to sing. They were so well-crafted, so well-crafted.
0: You talked about having um, an implosion um, at college. Was this something like an anxiety or panic attack?
1: Pretty much, pretty much. I mean, I was in this college, it was a technical college, and I was doing physics, engineering, drawing, and maths, applied maths. And I mean, I had <laughs> absolutely no bent in that area at all but it was just I had no idea what to do so I was just fumbling along and uh, I was speaking to a buddy of mine the other day and she said I would love to have gone to arts college I said oh my god that's where that's where I would, that would have been perfect for me but in the 1950s in Norfolk the uh, to get to art college was not really in my parents conception at all they had no idea about anything about that and nor did I so I was just bumbling along as best I could and it was absolutely the wrong place I mean the wrong environment for me
0: well I tend to look at um situations like that as a learning curve um so you must have learned something as a result of it obviously you did that you you wanted to do music but the subjects you were studying. So, in, Implies that you, you weren't stupid by any means.
1: No, I, no, I wasn't, and I'm not. But I know now from all my studies, etc. One of the one of the things that really hammers children at school is whatever is going on in their lives, their emotional state. If there are problems in the family, if there are problems at home, if there are problems in their environment, then that will impact very strongly because uh, there's very good research that shows that when we're afraid, the cortisol levels go way up and frontal lobe activity goes way down. And in essence, you can't think. You know, When you're afraid, you can't really think. You just kind of react or freeze. And that environment was, it was a very punitive, authoritarian, um, bullying place. And I went there when I was 11, very sensitive child, and got bullied. And it was just absolute hell. I kind of recovered from that, but the post-traumatic stress, I mean, that, that just continued throughout that time. And I was, I was not thinking clearly at all. So, to give us a. a so I am just going to say. I was just going to say. By the way, that hindsight is wonderful, and the narrative of our lives is the only way we can build a narrative is to go back to see what happened. When we're in it, there is no narrative. You're just reacting to what the hell is going on.
0: So true. So very, very true. So give us an insight as to what family life was like. Um, Are you an only child? Have you got siblings? And if so, where are you in the pecking order?
1: In family life, my parents were both Londoners. My father came from a line of cab drivers, black cab drivers. My mother was put in a convent when she was five and uh, left when she was 14. So she was shall we say, ill-prepared for the world and certainly ill-prepared to raise a child. She she loved me absolutely dearly, but uh, as you can imagine, the style of disciplining was directly from the convent, which was a Catholic convent, so we all know about nuns and discipline. And my father was emotionally unintelligent and uh, not reachable at all. So there were, there, you know, and I know I've, I've looked at this a long time, thought about a long time, why I became an alcoholic. And it's very clear to me now how. It's, it's difficult in the beginning because there was nothing overt untoward in the environment. In the, I was an only child, by the way, so I got the full impact of everything. And uh, my mother's love was very intense, but it was not a soft love, by any means. And if, again, if the organism, if the baby, the toddler is does not have that caressing, that, that comfort, then there are problems with development, emotional development, which amplify, if it's not addressed, as you go through life, these problems get amplified. And that, you know, the, the whole amplification for me was alcoholism. Alcoholism is a, um, is a manifestation of symptom. It is not the root cause by any means.
0: Where did you first come across music? And at that age, other than GNS, what were you listening to? And where were you accessing music?
1: Um, through albums. And that brings us very nicely, thank you very much, to the first track, which is Ray Charles' Sticks and Stones. As you can imagine, (laughs) listening to something like that was unbelievable for me. Um, The first album I bought when I was 11 was Take Five by Dave Brubeck. But Sticks and Stones was really the first time I became fully aware of Black artists, black music, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean, I absolutely adored that track, and this was—I think it was in the lower six as well, maybe the up, maybe the fifth. No, I think it was the lower six. And I tried to get two or three musicians or people who played instruments, which was not quite the same thing sometimes, um, to form a little band to play it, to literally play that song because I just wanted to give it a go. And nobody was interested, no surprise, in that college. So I kind of gave up on that right there. But I, I remember that I was just infatuated with that song and with Ray Charles.
2: People don't get trying to pick us up Why won't they let us be bricks in stone, they break my bones But talk don't bother me People don't get trying to pick us up When they know that I love you so so I don't care what the people may say. I'll never, never let you go. I've been abused, and abuse my heart. I, I so I've been abused. Abuse I've been abused. I've been abused, and I've been People we talking, trying to pick us up, yeah, scandalizing my name. They'll say anything just to make me feel bad. Just anything to make me shame. Trying a pick up of a name. Don't say anything just to make me feel bad. Yes, anything to make me shame. Yes, I know. Cry, yes, I know. yes, I know it. If yes. you know it too. Cry, yes. Don't you
1: know it too? Cry. There's something in black music for me and for many other people. The first time you hear it, it's It literally changes you. As does jazz, by the way, of course. And I remember I spoke to a pianist once who was studying to be a classical pianist and he heard jazz for the first time and he fell off his chair. And it changed his life. It changed his course, changed everything. Because of soul being so intrinsic to black music, spirit, soul, whatever you want to call it, something, the spirit of that just absolutely woke me up in that way. And Ray was, uh, brother Ray was so beautiful. I mean, (laughs) he, he he was a troubled man, of course. But look what he brought. And one thing I will always love about him is that, do you remember when he was really successful, he did a country album. And he got hammered for it. And he said, it's all music. I don't care. I don't care about that so he was he was not going to be locked in a box at all and that that's that's his genius he just wouldn't be locked down and of course that spirit is what drove him to be such a a powerful force for black artists what he had to break through to become brother ray he needed that real Incredible determination and blinding talent, you know.
0: Sadly, that's still true today for many black artists.
1: Absolutely. I've just been reading a book by Fuhrer Hirsch talking about racism in the the music industry in this country and, of course, in America. And absolutely, it's, it's just ongoing systemic racism. But, yeah, so Brother Ray, there he was, me, about 17 years old, had the first awakening to that, the power of that kind of music.
0: Were you conscious of racism or a certain friction around black music at that age?
1: Absolutely not. I had no idea. In in the village I was born in, I grew up in, in Norfolk, where my parents moved to. The only person of colour we ever saw was an Indian guy with a turban, so he's probably a Sikh who sold brushes. And I, I sometimes think about him, and I think about that man going to a a county in England like Norfolk, which is so cut off from you know, if you think the other counties are bad, Norfolk, you only go to Norfolk to go there, you don't go through Norfolk, and it was so parochial. And for that guy to go and go round the villages in Norfolk, I can't imagine what he experienced. I just can't imagine it. But what courage, what determination.
0: But it wasn't only the racism of, um, towards black people at that time. Um, the Irish were getting it as well, or anybody that oh, was different.
1: Oh, God, well, well, that's where we come into bullying, because my parents moved from London, moved into this village on a council estate. So I was very different. My parents were very different. And I got hammered for that. Not them so much, but I certainly did for being different. And uh, you don't find in that period of time, there weren't, it was a real farming community. You know, they still had farms that worked. They had lots of farm workers, agriculture. And uh, somebody like me, just didn't fit in, and and as I say, got hammered for it, for being the other. So that sense of the other was put in, well, put in, I experienced that without, I could never articulate that as a child, but that's what I experienced.
0: So your next choice, Eddie Kendrick's Keep On Trucking. How did you get into this one?
1: Right, 1973. Um, That's when I got together with Joanne, uh, we met, as you said, on the tour with James last. And we set up shop together. And every kind of, I can't remember how much, but something like every six months, Joanne was born in Newark, New Jersey. So we'd go back there to visit family and friends. And every time we went, we would hit the uh, particular record shop. In Newark, that had just every, you know, the latest pattern and things. And we'd come back with about a dozen albums, you know, each time. And uh, this just absolutely blew me open. And one of the albums uh, that we bought back was Eddie Kendricks. And one, you know, the single, Keep On Trucking, I obsessed on that, played it over and over again. And it was very much. Ashford and Simpson as well Very much feeding into Where I want to be musically And Of course being With Joanne It was a love song (laughs) Uh, Very much so
0: Tell me about your first visit to America. You know, this young chap growing up in uh, Norfolk, then going to somewhere like New York, New Jersey in 1973 must have been quite a tremendous contrast.
1: It was a tremendous contrast and it it was absolutely and utterly wonderful. I absolutely adored it. Um, to be, you know I was I was given the keys of the kingdom if you like I was given an entry into black culture and in a way that I, I'm just and I experienced it now it was of course it was it was complex because Joanne's uncle Uncle Percy had a pool hall on the high street and of course you know I love I love pool in those days. And so, of course, I would gravitate there. Now, Uncle Percy, he didn't like white people, (laughs) and for all the obvious reasons, so he had a problem with me. But having said that, the first thing that happened when on the first visit was that Uncle Percy threw a party in his basement for the whole extended family and me, which was all hell of a gesture. And I've never forgotten that, and I'm so grateful. He was a beautiful man. And we ended up, you know, liking each other a lot. So, um, <laughs> all right, this, highlight, <laughs> this highlights the difference in the culture. You've got to remember that in, in Norfolk, in the boarding school, we had a dance every Friday night, and we used to dance like the Gay Gordons. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, it's hysterical. These bloody songs and these awful dances. These young girls and boys having to learn these dances, you know, it's just hysterical anyway. So cut to 1973, I'm in the basement. I've gone in, the, I figure the only one I'm going to get through this is to run the bar because, you know, this is, you know, the first time I've ever been in a room full of black people. I'm the only white guy and for a moment I got a real shock. A real shot of like fear, and oh my god, what the hell am I going to do here? What do I? Because like, I had no idea what to do. I mean, how could you? I, nothing had prepared me. So I thought, in the right, go to the bar, run the bar. So I went. Oh. So I said, Percy, where's the bar? He said, Over. Okay. I said, Right. So I went. Who wants a drink? And that really got the whole thing going. Of course. So about halfway through the evening, my brother-in-law, Fred. He said, Russ, come here. I said, what? He said, come here. I said, all right. So then everybody formed a line. And I said, that's nice. And he said, yep. He said, now what, (laughs) Russ, what we're going to do is we're going to do a soul train. I said, oh, lovely, what's a soul train? And he said, well, everybody dances down the line your own dance. So I said, oh, that's great. He said, <laughs> including you. I said, you're joking. He said, no, you've got to do it. I said, oh, my God. And I'd had a few drinks by then, so it wasn't unbelievably terrifying, but it's still absolutely terrifying. But in the, in the end, I had to do it. So I, I did some bloody shuffle or something or the other. And Fred was waiting for me, and he looked down at me and said, well, right, he said, it ain't much, but it's cool. wonderful story
0: so by this time where was alcohol featuring in your life
1: it was already featuring I'd um, I hadn't I'd started really drinking in kind of um, I met a I got involved with some sessions that's when I got into the session world and uh, the guy who kind of I gravitated towards, and his wife ran a booking agency. He was a hard drinker, and uh, I started to get into it. And then we met, you know, I met other guys and, and, and women as well who were hard drinkers. So that just got things going. And I hadn't really, yeah, by the time I met Joanne, I mean, the first tour with James Glass we did, that was a, a band of very, very heavy drinkers. And that's, that's what really, that's when I really started to get into it. Re- you know, drinking every day, drinking a lot every day. And uh, it continued from there. And I had a, one or two implosions along the way before I met Joanne. And like most, well, this alcoholic anyway, as I was then, she kind of straightened me out. Having a relationship like that with her straightened me out for a while. So I was drinking, and it was still impacting on my life and impacting on our relationship, but not in a disastrous way, just in a relationship way. Because again, you think of me, an only child, bullying, boarding school, bully, all that stuff. I, I was in those. I was not good at relationships any more than my father was. He had no idea what to do, nor did I. I knew I was in love, but uh, the trauma you know, would uh, come roaring through at times, if you know anything about uh, trauma, how it affects behaviour when it kicks off, and it it used to kick off.
0: So, Aretha Franklin, where were you introduced to her and her music?
1: Well, Aretha, my god. It was listening to people like Aretha that I'd realized that we were looking, I was looking, I was hearing unbelievable music intelligence, unbelievable music ability. I was already aware of it. One of my favorite albums, I've forgotten about that, one of my favorite albums was Paul Best. There's a great recording that uh, I can't remember, was it Willard White? I think it was, yeah. It was, so I was, fascinated by black music but in that time as well I was aware that through popular songs and movies there were these two threads of us humans one was black and one was Jewish when you put the two together in America you got an art form that was just unbelievable I mean really unbelievable Aretha Somewhere, you look at what you've got. You've got her. (laughs) You got Quincy producing her with what he brings to the table, working a song that was written by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. So look at the look at the mastery that's going on there. But even with all that mastery, what did it for me? That song is is her piano playing. I heard a wonderful line from a songwriter who said about Aretha, he said he said, Be careful if you give a song to Aretha because you'll never get it back again. In other words, when she does her interpretation, that's it. Who the hell's gonna follow that? It's gone. Only another black person could do something radically different that would even get near it. So LA This, in that time there were these two threads the thread of black music the thread of Jewish music Jewish songwriting Jewish lyrics the wonderful movies of the 40s, 30s, 40s and 50s these people in theatre they were writing unbelievable songs so you know Somewhere was written by Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim, unbelievable interpreted by a Aretha, produced by Quincy. I mean, you, you know, the provenance of that is unbelievable. But the thing that raises it even more above that is Aretha. Her, her, her piano playing is, it makes me weep. And that voice, the two combined. And there's a very strong air of melancholy around the song. And Aretha interprets that because we know that uh, Aretha was not a happy bunny. So um, her interpret I mean, it, it's probably for me is about the most wonderful track I've ever heard. So
0: how old were you at this time and where were you living? Were you still based in uh, Norfolk or had you moved on?
1: No, no, we were, I, lived in London. I was living in London. I'd had a previous marriage where I lived in uh in Ham near Richmond. Then when I got together with Joanne, we lived in uh, we moved to Southall. We lived in we were living in Southall in that time. And then we moved to Camberley. Um, and I would have been then about twenty seven, twenty six, twenty seven. And um, what were you
0: doing for a living at the time? Had you <coughs> made um Music pay, or were you having to subsidise
1: well, music? No, we, we were very. No, we were. I was full time session singer. We were. I've been doing that for a few years by then. Since about sixty eight, <clears throat> um, did a lot of work. It was the the golden years of sessions. We were uh, we were very busy, and and uh, on a busy day, you'd be doing. Three sessions, 10 to 1, 2 to 5, 7 to 10, and probably three different sessions in three different studios, so you'd an hour to get right across London sometimes. It's just about timing.
0: It, what's going through my mind is that you have this absolute passion for our R&B, soul music, etc. Did you ever think of going and living in the States to completely absorb more of this art of music?
1: Um, no, because i gradually became aware that America was not, was not Hollywood. And, uh, well, we went to LA because Joanne lived in LA briefly and she got out because of the uh, earthquake, but we went to stay with some family who lived in downtown LA and, uh, you know, we went down and met them and it was great and all getting along. And then we had to go back to the hotel, which was up in Beverly Hills. And the guy said, oh shit. He said, okay, look, he said, I'm gonna run you to the hotel, but he said, I'll just drop me off and get the hell out of there. I said, what are you talking about? What, is it dangerous? He said, it is for me. I said, what do you mean? He said, oh man, they see me up, and they see me there, a black guy driving a car in Beverly Hills, I'm dead. I said, what do you mean? He said, because I'm black, you dumb ass, M-M-M. I said, oh, and that that kind of got me. And the, the other instance that happened as well was that in Newark, we were in an apartment and the woman in the apartment looked out the window and said, oh my God, there's a guy walking along carrying a rifle. So she called the police and said, there's a guy walking down the street with a rifle. So the policeman said, Has he killed anybody? She said, No. He said, Well, call us when he does. And she told us that. I said, You what? I mean, I just that's when I knew I was not going to live in America. Not with Joanne. <laughs> we're, uh, oh. we're, on
0: to, um, we're on to Gil Scott Heron, a sign of the ages from pieces of a man.
1: Okie doke. This is a, a complex one, but Gil, I heard him in the 70s, and he made a noise in my head, but because of the groove, really. I didn't really get the activist part until much later on. And, um, well, about 12 years ago, I went to a concert in the Festival Hall with an Azerbaijan singer who was an amazing singer, with his ensemble and the uh, Kronos Quartet. And it was fantastic. They came together and they played together. It was just brilliant, the whole thing. So half Muslim audience, half classical audience. The place was alive. It was so electric. But in the in the program notes, it said that this Azerbaijan singer sang in the ancient Morgam tradition, spiritual tradition of music, poetry, and dance. And as soon as I read that, I went, bang, and that's what I want to do. That's where I want my path to go. And I, I'd struggled for a while to figure out what kind of poetry. And of course, there's Rumi, who I do use, who I absolutely adore. Jalal Rumi from 900 years ago from Persia. But gradually it dawned on me that I'm dealing with, that I'm, I'm already among poets like Gil and others. Who bring that activist quality, and of course hip hop. Because I never really got hip hop. I didn't understand what it was until quite recently. That these are activists, and when I started, because I'm you know my, my ear goes to the music, not the lyrics, not the lyricists. I don't really listen to the lyrics. But when I started to listen to the lyrics, I said, "Oh my God, that's what's happening. This is the this is another this constant regeneration that." People from Africa seem to have, which is, when you think you've got it nailed down, they just create something new <laughs> from the streets. You know, it just comes roaring up from these young kids over and over again. The spirit will not be confined. So the music industry tries to commodify it all and control people, and the young kids are saying, you know, "F you, I'm going to do this," and they do it, and that has spread around the world. It is so strong. The spirit has spread. So anyway, so Gil was a real forerunner to me of that. And bless him.
3: It's a sign of the ages. Markings on my mind. Man at the crossroads. At odds with an angry sky, there can be no salvation, there can be no rest until all old customs. Are put to the test The gods are all angry You heal from the breeze As night slams like a hammer Yeah, and you drop to your knees The questions can't be answered You're always haunted by the past The world's full of children
0: On the time of uh, we do it, the success. Tell us how that came into fruition.
1: Yeah, I've been I've been writing since about twenty. Well, before that, I've been just writing songs and uh, not really finding any form or structure. It was with Joanne getting together with Joanne with the black music that suddenly gave me a real direction. And so I did a bunch of tunes, about three songs and demoed them. Phil Swear, it was given to Phil Swear by one of the other singers, Lynn Cornell, who was with uh, Paper Dolls, I think, or something. Um, and she gave it to Phil to have a listen to. He heard it, loved it. So we did a, a recording of those three songs and it was immediate, obviously, immediately, obviously immediately <laughs> that We Do It was the standout track. So he took that to RCA, they picked it up, and uh, as it was in those days, the, uh, the, the head of it, one of, one of the guys in promotion said he loved it so much, he said, I'm going to make this. So he gave it a hell of a push and really stuck with it. It took some time, but in I think it was February of um, 75, 76, something, when it broke. And when it broke, um, we got a lot of coverage. It punched right above its weight. Of course, I think the black-white thing, the, ma- the being married thing, you know, that was so unusual that uh, all the media picked up on it. And we got a lot of coverage and a lot of energy. We had a manager, management, it uh, was MAM at the time. And unfortunately, they were very cabaret. Uh, linked so they whacked us out on the cabaret tour which was financially very very good indeed but disastrous because that time should have been spent in development and it wasn't and uh, so I got rid of those managers and got together with another guy whose immediate thing was to put me writing with another writer who was very white and it was really the material was dreadful really just bland, it was horrible and I didn't enjoy it, and then that ended, and that took us up to about the end of 78 when I met Tor. And of course, having done the songs with him, some great songs, lots of feel, lots of groove, that's when Joanne was diagnosed, and uh, then I had nine months of... And she was diagnosed by, obviously, a, a consultant, and he asked me, asked her to leave the room. He wanted to talk to me briefly. And he just looked at me and he said, I'm afraid there's nothing to be done here. Because they'd opened up the skull and had a look in. And he said, it's very aggressive and uh, just don't tell her. Just just live your life as best you can. Which is some, I think I would have called it different now as I look back. But that was what it was. So for. About six months, I just was in hell and not drinking. Because if I'd have drunk, I'd have told her. So I couldn't drink, didn't dare drink. And then she realized something was wrong. And she said, we need to have a talk. And my heart just sank because I knew it was going to happen. Well, the reason I picked Frank is because he is just absolute and utter, unbelievable groove. He is a groove maestro. He's just a groove machine. He just sits down and pumps it out.
4: Someone stole my joy yesterday I had to sit down and find a song to play Judge me not by the clothes that I wear Pardon me, I don't appreciate your stare I'm so tired of the
0: Denomination
1: were you brought up? Catholic? No, um, oh, English Protestant, you know. I was in the church choir, went through all that. I mean, it didn't. uh, Well, this is the thing about belief structures, you know, when you're exposed to that as a young child, it gets embedded in. You may not believe in it overtly, but it's, it's very deep, that's the problem. Like all the other conditions go on with being a child when you are conditioned when you are cultured, absolutely born into the culture and a cultured into the culture. So I didn't have faith in terms of that but uh, there was always a, there was always something the spirit I know was, was strong in me but it, <laughs> it had a lot to deal with as I was as a young man. But when it got released was when I was in the treatment center and looking out of a window. And I realized that being sober was not enough. It just was absolutely not enough, didn't touch the sides. And the thought just came, a very simple thought that said, it's got to be a spiritual journey. That's what's going to be it. So that was in 1992, and I've just followed that very simple thought. And that thought has amplified through the ages until it is... So strong now.
0: Onto your final track, Eddie Harris, Les McCann. Compared to what? Okay.
1: (laughs) Well, I can't remember when I first came across this song, probably in the last 10 years. And I think it was on YouTube or whatever. And I was transfixed. First of all, it's a jazz trio, which is quartet brilliant great players but it's the passion and you know it was written by Gene Booker Jean Booker McDaniels and it was about the Vietnam War and some of the references in the lyrics I don't quite get because it's not my culture but you can tell the scream that's coming out of it and, and Eddie he just sings it is it Les McCann who sings I can't remember now whatever, the one who's singing playing the Piano, he's, yeah, unbelievable passion and pain pouring out of him. And that just hit me like, again, like a tonne of bricks. And his piano playing is so percussive. And the energy of these musicians pouring out their heart, pouring out their soul through the music. That's why it's, that's why it's so powerful.
0: What would you like to go back and tell your 11-year-old self?
1: What I would tell my eleven year old self.
0: Or is that, that young I'm here boy waiting. that had um that imploded at college. What would yeah. you like to tell him perhaps?
1: I would tell him that I'm here waiting.
5: The motivation that is hanging up the goddamn nation looks like we always end up in a rut. Everybody now trying to make it real compared to what The houses are killing halls. Twisted children are killing foes Poor dumb rednecks rolling low Tired old ladies kissing dogs I hate the human love of that sneaking butt I can't use it I'm trying to make it real compared to what? of what it's for Nobody gives us a rhyme or reason Half a one doubt They call it treason With chicken feathers All the way out wonder Sunday and not trying to duck the wrath of God. Preachers filling us with fright.